Well, welcome back. So it's good to see you all again. Thanks for gathering this morning. I'm excited, despite the heat, to jump into our series that we've been doing now for almost three months um, called Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God. And so we're going to dive into this this morning as we've been looking at the life of Abraham as he helps showcase for us what it looks like to love God. The most important thing is to actually love God. And so what does that actually look like day to day? How can we move forward in that? And as we've seen throughout this, there are times when Abraham showcases that for us. There are times he does that by doing the right thing. There are times he does that by absolutely doing the wrong thing. But one of the reoccurring themes that we've seen, kind of different components to this, and I'll put this before you by way of reminder, is loving God looks like trusting him. A call to trust him even when life doesn't make any sense. And my guess is this morning is if you and I were able to sit down and have a conversation, we would pretty quickly be able to talk about things in your life and things in my life that that don't make sense, that we sometimes wonder, how is God going to be at work? Is he at work? Can we trust him? But what we see over and over again in this wonderful account is even when we fail to love God, he loves us so, so faithfully. And so this morning, here's what I wish. I wish I could take credit for this. We are in the account this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. So if you brought a Bible, please turn to that. Get an app out on your phone. There are paperback Bibles in the pews. Or you can go to cplife.church. Click on the sermon notes image. And the text will be there as well as space to take notes. Um, We are in the birth account of Isaac. And I wish I could say... Months ago, I mapped this out. I was like, this is going to be perfect. We're going to talk about the birth of Isaac on Mother's Day, child dedications. I actually had no clue until a couple weeks ago. I'm like, oh, that's kind of corresponding. So way to go, God. I had nothing to do with that, uh, but excited that on this day, we get to talk about this account because in the life of Abraham, if you know the story, whether you're new to Crosspoint or not, my guess is many of you might know, though, the story that he is somebody that had been promised by God that he was going to be made into a great nation. And that was going to start with him and his wife having a son, but they haven't had any kids. And at this point in the story, Abraham has just celebrated his 100th birthday and his wife is 90. That is not the normal ages for people to have their first child. All right. I don't know a lot about science, but generally that's how it goes. Okay. So, uh, here's where we are. Genesis chapter 21. We're going to look at the first 21 Verses. Let me read this, and then we'll make our way through this text this morning. Genesis 21. It says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Verse eight. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. 
So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will, have, will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be dis- distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. Verse 14, so early in the morning, Abraham got up and he took bread and a water skin and he put them on Hagar's shoulders and he sent her and the boy away. And she left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bow shot away For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. And while she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. Verse 17. And God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and she gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is God's word for us this morning. When my two daughters uh, were much younger, all right, one is 18 right now, the other is almost 16, Uh, when they were much younger, they would go through particular phases of things that they were interested in, and one of the phases that they went through was the American Girl Doll phase. Uh, Some of you maybe have had daughters who've gone through this phase, maybe they're still in that phase, maybe you're still in that phase, I actually have no idea, right? Uh, Maybe you're the grandparent that has had to pay for that phase, I'm not sure, right? But that perhaps has been part of maybe your kid's life. And so my daughters, and they're, again, um, I don't know, maybe three, four years old, five, six, somewhere in that, that range. Um, the older one had gotten this particular American Girl doll. Uh, the younger one hadn't gotten one yet until one of her aunts said, well, you can have the one that I had growing up, which would be very sweet. And it is, it is very sweet, except the family dog had gotten a hold of that one and had chewed her foot off, all right? So that was the American Girl doll that she took with her and she carried around. But as you can imagine, she still longed for the day when she too might be able to have her own doll that had all its, had all its toes. That's all she wanted, right? Um, and so one day, and I, I happened to stumble upon this this week, um, and uh, I was reminded of this particular story, she was able to get a doll, all right? And in this, well, let me just show you the clip, all right? Family video time, here we go, all right? Um, Here is her opening up her doll. Now, remember, the one she had had the mangled foot, all right? Um, So here is my youngest daughter unwrapping her doll. So if you heard that, right, first thing out of her mouth is like, oh, she's special to me, right? And so she's just astonished. She's loving this moment. But then you see that look. It's like all the synapses are firing. All of a sudden she's like, oh, 
I need to double check this because the one doll had the busted foot, right? And so she goes and she kind of lifts up that long dress of the American Girl doll and then says in her cute raspy voice, mom, look, she doesn't have broken toes. And so there's this astonishment, there's this joy, there's just the sense of over, she's just overwhelmed. I mean, she's just caught up and there's, there's laughter and there's happiness and, and all of these sort of emotions that she's experiencing. Now, that, what was true of her in that moment and getting a doll, you think about that, that sort of just moment of elation, astonishment, all right, wondering how something's gonna play out, having your dreams come true, whatever your dreams happen to be. Now think about Abraham and Sarah. Think about this couple that had waited their entire life to have a child, who had been promised a couple decades even before that God was going to give them a son. He was gonna give them land, he was gonna give them a son that through that, they become this great nation. And at this point, decades have passed. And Abraham is wondering what in the world is gonna happen. And yet what we see here in these first seven verses is this rejoicing in the son of promise. A son was promised and God delivered on his word. So what I wanna look at this morning is this rejoicing in the son of promise. Then we'll look briefly at this other son that we know is Ishmael in the text, his mocking of the son of promise. And then we can conclude by asking this question, how do you and I become the sons of promise that we're invited to become? But first, this rejoicing in the son of promise. You look at this, right, and you, you read this story, and it's like, oh my goodness, finally, like the day is here. And as we look back over the life of Abraham and Sarah, here's one of the things I think we need to consider that there was this movement from self-protection to celebration, from self-protection to celebration. Here's what I mean. Think about anything that you've ever hoped for, you've dreamed about. To actually hope for something, to dream of something, to allow yourself the space to sort of desire something, all right? In doing that, and as you share that with other people, you have the risk of a couple of things happening. On the one hand, as you share that hope, man, there's more people invited into it. We get to celebrate together. Let's have a party. I, this is what I've longed for. I've longed for this. I've hoped for this. And God has provided. But if you open yourself up to that, you step into hope. You step into risk. You step into this space. It's incredibly vulnerable because what if it doesn't go the way that you want it to? What if your hopes and all the things you long for, what if your dreams don't actually come true? And I think a natural response when that happens, at least one of our kind of defense mechanisms in that sort of space is we laugh it off. When our hope is sort of exposed, but we're not sure if it's gonna happen, I think an immediate response sometimes, just out of a gut instinctual level, is to laugh. We've seen this in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Genesis 17, verse 17, God has come to Abraham and told him, all right, I'm gonna give you a son. Abraham fell face down and then he laughed and he said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Do you see what's happening here? He wants to hope. He wants this to happen. But there's a laughter. I think there's this self-protection. We laugh because we're just not sure, man. Is it going to play out the way we want it to? Next chapter. There's a conversation that Abraham is having with the Lord, and Sarah is overhearing this. 
in chapter 18, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And then verse 12 tells us this. So she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. And so God spoke these words. We looked at this a few weeks ago. And when God speaks, his word always comes to pass. But yet time has gone on. They have wondered. I think they, this probably stirred something in them of like, all right, we're hopeful. And yet, I think dealing with this reality of like, is it going to come true? And so when we pick up this story, just look at how this starts again. In Genesis 21, verse one, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said. The Lord's like, hey, I promised you this. I'm moving toward you. That is the story that we see. God's love for his people, he moves toward us. You're here this morning, all right, because God is moving toward you. That's part of how God works. He's drawing us to himself. And then as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. So right out of the gate, it's like, let's just remember, the Lord said some things, and the Lord's going to do some things, and this is what is actually taking place. And so it tells us in verses, verses 2 to 3, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him, and Abraham named his son who was born to him, this one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And the Lord had said, this is what you're to name the child. Now, if we just stop there for a moment, here's what's so fascinating. Think about their life up to this point. God makes promises. They're trying to follow him. They're messing up at various points. They're having trouble believing. There's the self-protective nature of even just laughter. They laughed when God said this. Abraham did it. Sarah did it. And then God, not to shame them, but to remind them of the laughter and the joy of God, to remind them of his grace, a God who delights in doing the surprising thing when we cannot do anything else for ourselves, when we are literally dead, he breathes new life. And this is how our God works. He says, name the boy Isaac, all right? Which literally means he laughs. So think about that. God spoke, God promised. Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, all right? This is too good to be true. I don't know if I wanna open myself up to that sort of hope, that sort of desire. And then God comes through as God always does. And then he said, you know, name the son Isaac. He laughs. Think about this. They're laying him down to bed at night. They're kissing his forehead. Oh, Isaac. They're literally saying, here is he laughs. Look at he laughs as he begins to crawl and walk and speak. Look at he laughs as he grows up. It was this constant reminder of the story, their story as a family. And that God loves to show up in the most surprising ways. Sarah even says this as the narrative continues. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. This is a different type of laughter at this point, though. This is not the self-protective, uh, I don't know if God's going to come through, sort of you know, posture that she has. But rather, she's like, I'm all in, man. Like She is laughing. It is, it is not just a little chuckle. I mean, she is just astonished. 
like a little girl getting this doll and just being blown away. She's precious to me. Oh my goodness, like it's just mind-blowing. At a far more significant level, here is Sarah and she's laughing the laughter of God. She's caught up in this story. Now, here's one of the things I think is so beautiful about this. Because in this account, the word laughter shows up, variations of it, multiple times in just a few short verses. It's God's way of saying, hey, just remember, I do surprising things. And I love this. Like, if you think about what I just read out of Genesis 17 and 18, I would imagine for Abraham and Sarah, it would have been so easy to spiral into shame, wouldn't it, at this point? Like, every time they said Isaac's name, to be reminded, like, ooh, yeah, remember that time when you laughed and I laughed and we didn't believe the promise of God? Like, how does a place of deep shame actually get transformed? I mean, they laughed at the promises of God. They were like, yeah, right. I mean, sort of this scoffing, this mocking, this like, this, no, I don't, I don't believe it. I would imagine there'd been some shame that they carried with that. The reality is, here's how, I don't know what you do, what your strategy. For me, the places of shame, it's like, well, let's compartmentalize that. Let's push that in the dark recesses of somewhere of my, my, my mind or my soul. Let's not talk about that. Let's try and forget that. Let's hope that never comes up in a conversation and things get awkward, right? Like that's what we tend to do with our shame. And yet the Lord in his kindness has them name their son, he laughs. Not to shame them, but as a way to say he is bringing redemption out of their doubts, their brokenness. He is redeeming all things. Friends, this is what should cause the laughter of God when we realize that he is taking our shame and our sorrow and he redeems it all. That's what he's doing. You may not feel that right here in this moment, but know this, the God that we worship is a God who takes our shame and leads us into celebration. And even the places that might remind us of previous brokenness, he's saying, hey, don't grovel in that, don't stay there, but also know this, let them be fresh reminders of God's grace and God's mercy in your life. It's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 30, 11 to 12, he says, this. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. These are the, the clothes of like despair, of a death, of funeral, right? Of grieving and clothe me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is playing out for them. And friends, if you're in Christ, this is the confidence that you can have that regardless of what's going on, and the shame and the brokenness that you carry, the Lord is looking to bring redemption into it. And so it makes me just dream for a minute about like our church. Like imagine what kind of church we could be where we would have a posture where we don't take ourselves seriously. What if Crosspoint became known as the place like, man, they take laughter seriously, all right? Not because we don't deal with weighty matters, but because there's this confidence in the Lord that whatever comes our way, not because we're anything and you've got this figured out, but because we're like, we've experienced the mercy and we are experiencing the mercy and the grace of God. That there can be this lighthearted disposition, even in the midst of pain, to know this is astonishing that the Lord would use messed up, jacked up people like us. This would never be how I'd plan it, but the Lord is doing something among us. Imagine if that's what we became known for. And that's some of the picture that we're getting. Now, in this, I told you, there's a shift that takes place. And we won't look in great detail at every 
last verse here, but there is a mocking then. The son of promise shows up in Isaac, all right, but now there's a mocking of the son of promise that we see in verses eight to 21. And by way of recap, in case you've forgotten or you're not familiar with this, at a certain point in the story, not only do Abraham and Sarah laugh, not believing God's promises, they also get to a point where they strategize. And Sarah says, all right, Abraham, you've got this servant, we've got this servant, Hagar, why don't you sleep with her, maybe have a child, and that way our family line can continue through her. That's who's being referenced here. And the son that is born to this woman, Hagar, is the son of Abraham and Hagar named Ishmael. At this point in the story, he's about 16 years old, all right? I don't know if he's just like this angsty teenager, right? And he just sort of like wants to mock anything that, that's happening. So Abraham throws this huge party, which we're like, all right, the, the child's been weaned. I don't, maybe you throw weaning parties. I'm not sure. But anyway, like this has taken place. But in that time and culture, it's a big deal because not every child even lived to be two or three years old. And so he throws this party. And then what we read, it says this, the child grew and was weaned. There's the big party. But Sarah saw the son. Some translations will say laughing. There's that, our word again. But it also can be rightly interpreted and understood as mocking. The one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. So she said to him, drive out the slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. And at one level, maybe one reading, we're like, all right, maybe you know, she'd be a little touchy, a little, little possessive, maybe hadn't slept enough throughout the night, right? Like, I'm not sure what's going on here. But then God actually says, no, Abraham, listen to your wife, Sarah, all right? And she do this, actually do what she says to do. So God is affirming what is taking place here. And as we will see in this, that God makes it clear, yes, you had the son with Ishmael, and I'll make sure that I take care of him, but my promise one, the one who's going to be about building a nation to bring about the redemption of all of humanity, to be part of God's redemptive story. It's not through the line of Ishmael. Isaac is the son of promise. And so then it tells us, you know, early in the morning, Abraham got up, he took bread and a water skin, he put them on Hagar's shoulders and he sent the boy away. So they're sent out basically into the wilderness into the desert. They've got a little bit of food. They've got as much water as they can possibly carry. But if you've ever hiked, right, in any sort of like dry, arid place, like you use that stuff up quickly. And eventually they get to a point where Hagar is like, I don't want to watch my boy die. And so she even physically separates herself from him. And he sits under this tree, under this bush, and he's crying and she's crying. And then there's this thing that happens that an angel shows up. And the angel called to Hagar from heaven and said, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying. I want you to see something in this text for a moment. This one who had mocked the son of promise, this one who was driven out and the Lord didn't say, hey, that's the wrong thing, actually affirmed that that was the right thing to do. This mocker, who literally is mocking the plans of God, mocking the son of promise, is extended incredible mercy. The mocker receives mercy. I mean, look with me at verses 18. He says, get up, help the boy grasp with sand, for I will make him into a great nation. So there's a promise in verse 18. He's gonna be a great nation. There's provision in verse 19. 
her eyes, the Lord opened her eyes and she saw a well and she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink, all right? And then, verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew. The mocker receives incredible mercy. I'm making a promise to you. Yes, I'm building through Isaac, but you too will become, because of Abraham, you're gonna become a great nation. Not only doing that someday off in the future, I know you need to be rescued right now. And so I'm gonna open Hagar's eyes so that she would actually see this well that was nearby. Reminder for us that oftentimes like God's provision is right near us and God, will you open our eyes to see what you have for us? And then God, not only does he do that, he says, I'll be with the boy. His very presence. And so one of the things that's so key in understanding this is we talk through the life of Abraham and we see God's provision is we have to remember the bigger story that God is writing. Because we have to ask ourselves, I think, this question, like, how do you see yourself in this? Do you see yourself as Ishmael, as a mocker, of the promises of God, of the things of God? Do you scoff at the things of God? This story actually, I believe, is inviting us to consider that. And it's inviting us not only to consider it, but it actually, I believe, the overall storyline of the Bible is naming that as true. So think about it this way. God, from the very beginning, after Adam and Eve rebel, they get kicked out of the garden. What does God say? In the midst of curses, he pronounces this good news. It's the first time we get the, the gospel, right? He says that one day from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. It's like, yeah, you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So there's this promise that some way, somehow from God, God's going to build out a family. And from this family, eventually there would become from the seed, there would become a son. There'd become an ultimate son of promise that would deal with Satan, sin and death and get us back into the presence of God for what we've been created for. And so friends, this whole story about a son of promise should lead us to be thinking about the son of promise. It was a miracle that a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old dude had a baby, right? It's even more miraculous that a teenage virgin was, had a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. Like the son of promise is what Isaac points us to. And the son of promise who showed up, who's part of this lineage, part of the promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter three about how God is gonna bring renewal and redemption to everything, here's what happened. He shows up, he lives the sinless life that you can't live and I can't live, but we're called to live. And then this son of promise, what happens to him? He is sent away to have a crown of thorns put on his head as the soldiers mock him scoff at him, slap him and say, who hit you? After ripping the flesh off his back with whips, they put a purple robe on him and they fake worship him, hail king of the Jews. He's paraded through the town. He is nailed to a cross. The soldiers there mock him. The religious leaders mock him. He saved others. How come he can't save himself? One of the other criminals on the cross being crucified next to him, is hurling insults. And it even tells us those that were just passing by were mocking him. Like everybody's taking a shot at Jesus. 
And we can read that and read ourselves into this story and think, no way I would do that. But is that true? The Bible is showcasing for us that left on our own, we are part of the crowd that mocks. Whether we're the religious leaders or the soldiers or just a passerby on the way to the store or whatever, we too would join in. There's a modern day hymn called How Deep the Father's Love. I will not sing it. That would not be loving for anybody. But let me read this one particular line. Many of you are familiar with this song. It says this, behold the man upon a cross. My sin has been placed upon his shoulders. Ashamed, what? I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And goes on to say, it was my sin that held him there. Friends, this story is asking us within the totality of the scriptures to consider, where are you in it? The son of promise, yes, Isaac came, but the son of promise showed up. And on my own, I would mock and ridicule and keep living a life that's centered on me. And I think at times I would laugh because I would laugh thinking like, there's no way what he's offering could really come true, right? Like there's lots of people these days who reject Christianity, but I don't think they really know what they're really rejecting. I read a sermon by Tim Keller and he said, if you're gonna reject it, reject it with tears because you should so desperately want it to be true. Like, I can't believe any of this, this is nonsense. But oh my goodness, to be astonished, like, what if this actually is true? Like, I so desperately want it to be true that God would love me, that he would care for me, that I get to be in his presence, I can stop pretending, I can put the mask down, I can just be open and honest and vulnerable and somebody would love and care for me. Like that space? Yeah, I don't believe any of this, but man, I want that to be true. And I think, left on my own, if but for the grace of God, I would laugh and I would mock and I wouldn't know what to do with that longing and so I would safeguard my heart. I'd just mock and I'd keep going on hoping that maybe tomorrow will be better than today. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, friends, I've got something so much better for you. Not only am I the son of promise, you can become sons of promise. So I'll conclude with this. How do we become sons of promise? We do not have time for this on a normal Sunday, but especially today. But Galatians chapter four, this fascinating account, the Apostle Paul references Genesis 21. And what he begins to reference is this contrast between Hagar and Ishmael and like Sarah and Isaac. And he admittedly says, he's sort of allegorizing, right? He's sort of saying, I'm gonna take this, what historically happened to make a particular point. And in essence, what he lays out is this. He's saying, which way will you choose? The way of Ishmael or the way of Isaac? And friends, if we think of the story, here's the way of Ishmael. What was, how did his life originate? It's Abraham strategizing. I'll take matters in my own hand. God isn't gonna come through. It's the posture and the disposition of religion that says do more, do more, achieve, get a plan, you get this together. You've got to prove that you're somebody. You've got to prove that you're enough. It's no wonder that the world looks at the church when we so often present that and doesn't want, they're like, I have that already. Why would I give up really nice time on a Sunday morning to go be told that message? 
But what about the true message? What we see in Isaac, it's a story of God's abundant grace. To be astonished at his grace. What Paul lays out in Galatians 4 is like, you can either live the old tired way of religion, trying to make a name for yourself, or you can rest in the promises of God. And when you do that, when you realize what the son of promise has done for you, it gets, it's mind-blowing. It is astonishing because we then become sons. Unless you think for a moment that I'm being rude, especially here on Mother's Day and leaving the women out, the language here in Galatians 4 is intentional because the sons in that time and that place, they got the rights, they got the inheritance. This is why Paul would say this. Notice how similar the language. At the appointed time that Isaac was born, same language here, when the time came to completion at the appointed time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's this intimacy, this closeness, this presence. He's welcoming us in. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And guess what, friends? If you are a son, then God has made you an heir. You get the inheritance. You get all the rights and privileges that belong to Jesus have now been given to you. You have become a son of promise through the son of promise. This story points us to that reality. And so in light of this, we're going to respond. We're going to respond to this grace. We don't have to do it. Christ has done it. We are going to partake in this meal, this communion meal this morning. It is a reminder of where you put your hope and your trust in. Is it the way of Ishmael or is it the way of Isaac? If you've never trusted in Christ, we encourage you just stay and contemplate these things. But if today is the day you trust in Christ, you follow God into his grace, we invite you to the table. We're gonna respond by singing. We're gonna respond by giving this one. These are all opportunities to say, Lord, thank you, we don't have anything to earn. So we respond by repenting, by remembering the story we're part of and by rejoicing. I'll close with this. It's an old college professor of mine. He had these words to say about what we're gonna participate in here in communion as it pertains to laughter. The way of Ishmael leads to death, to cynicism, to being jaded, but the way of Isaac, you're invited into the laughter and the life of God. And so, yes, we take it seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. We laugh at our our mistakes, not because sin isn't serious. Our sin put Jesus on the cross, but we laugh just in uh, just an astonishment of like, how crazy is this that we get to be called his sons? So Hassel Bullock said this. Let me read this as part of our preparation for communion. When we gather around the communion table, for example, we are usually somber, and so we should be but with a somberness clad in joy. What if we gathered around the Lord's table and burst into a gale of laughter? Would it be disrespectful? I don't think so as long as it is the laughter of heaven, laughter that symbolizes the joy that Jesus knew in doing his Father's will, the joy that our sins are forgiven and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the joy that he is coming again. At the Lord's table, the tears ought to flow because of what we have done to Christ. But friends, but joy ought to bubble up in our souls because of what Christ has done for us. 
It's the latter reason that provokes the laughter of heaven. If we could hear the music of the spheres, it would not be a sinister laughter, not, even, not a get-even laughter, not an I got you at last laughter, but the laughter of love, the laughter the exiles had as they made their way back home, the laughter that comes from the knowledge of sins forgiven, of the world made right with God, of a universe that declares the glory of God, of light that shines in the darkness, and that darkness cannot overcome. Let's get ready to celebrate. Let's get ready to laugh and worship together in gladness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace. Thank you that you extend mercy to scoffers and mockers like us. And then you transform us and make us into your people, into your sons, that there's an inheritance now, Jesus. You are right now guarding. Thank you for that. Thank you for the story that we've been caught up in. Thank you for the laughter of heaven. And so God, as we respond now with communion and worship through song and giving, God, may it bring just a great delight to you. May you be honored and glorified in it. And God, may we just experience just a deep sense of, of joy, the laughter of heaven as we worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.